0: Welcome to Building Sustainability, the podcast that brings you interviews with designers, builders, makers, dreamers and doers, exploring the wide world of sustainability in the built environment by talking to wonderful people who are doing excellent things. I'm your host, Jeffrey Hart. So it is April in 2020, and this month we'll be releasing three episodes. The reasons for that are threefold. Firstly, coronavirus. I'm sure you've heard of it. With everyone being at home, it seems right to do my best to to send out more content, uh, try and keep people entertained. With everyone being at home, it's made the task of scheduling and uh, recording conversations actually quite a lot easier. So I am racking up quite a few conversations with people in their homes. Uh, I just want to get those out and shared with people. I think maybe a more sensible option would be to bank all these conversations uh, so I have less work to do later. But that feels a little bit like uh, hoarding toilet paper. Uh, and I think more good will come from uh, from just pushing out more episodes Second reason is that it's actually the Building Sustainability podcast's first birthday. Uh, We have been going for one whole year. So this is is kind of a celebration, uh, giving you some extras. But also, I promised an episode a month, and there's been a couple of months that I missed. So this is sort of making up for it. So there you go, three episodes this month. The uh, the more eagle-eyed of you may have noticed that uh, we've got a new logo uh, that was designed by the wonderful Lee John Phillips. If you don't know his work, you should check out his Instagram, which is Lee John Phillips. Uh, I'll put a link in the show notes. He is maybe best known for his shed project, where he is going through the contents of his uh, grandfather's shed and drawing each and every item in exquisite and very very beautiful detail so that's every nail every bolt uh beautiful beautiful hand tools uh sort of trinkets and little little scraps uh in his yeah most exquisite style and yeah i'll talk a little more at the end of the podcast about the logo um but i just wanted to say a big thanks to lee john phillips in this month's episode, I am talking to Lucy Pedler. Lucy is an architect with 34 years of professional experience in the UK and in the US, and has particular expertise in sustainable building practices. Lucy created the Green Register in 2000 as part of her lifelong commitment to the promotion of sustainable building. So we talk about retrofitting existing buildings. Now retrofitting maybe isn't a term that you're familiar with. My my definition would be that it's refurbishing a house but bringing the building's efficiency up to modern building standards as well as uh, the, the looks and the feel. This focuses mainly on the three areas of stopping heat loss, creating air tightness and managing moisture in this conversation we talk a little bit about uh lucy retrofitting her own home Uh, we talk some about internal and external wall insulations the and the difficulties of either and and we touch a little bit on passive house which is really the extreme end of retrofit where you're really tightening up the building, lots and lots of insulation, very airtight, and controlling the the conditions in the house. So that's it from me for now. I should say that these are recordings that are done from Lucy's own home and me in mine. Uh, so there are some background noises. I think everyone's becoming pretty accustomed to uh maybe a little DIY. Uh, home broadcasting at the moment, uh, with, with doctors and, and politicians all, all talking over video, uh, conference. So, uh, perhaps it's, it's not as jarring. Um, but yeah, the sound quality is, is slightly diminished. Uh, and you might, might hear, uh, the clinking of cups or, or sirens in the background. I'll be back at the end to do a quick roundup and I'll also talk a little bit more about the logo design with Lee John Phillips.
1: I trained as an architect, um, qualified in back in the dark ages of the mid 80s and worked in the conventional sense for a while, but realised that sort of the traditional form of architectural service wasn't really for me and I was always, always interested in the environment. Mm-hmm. Spent a long time trying to marry those two and got the opportunity to work at the UK's first uh, green building store in London. Okay. And uh, so I kind of took a lateral step in my profession and was uh, learning about natural building materials and sustainable building practices in general. And I did that for five years. I created their seminar program mm-hmm. and then I realized I missed architecture. So in 1999, I sort of started my own architectural business. Um, but what one of the, the most profound things that I discovered working at this building centre was the lack of independent uh, advice and guidance on sustainable building. Um, lots of manufacturers will give lots of very useful technical information, but it's naturally going to be biased towards their products. Sure. And the seminar programme, it was called Construction Resources, which apparent which uh, sadly is no longer. Um, the seminar programme I was working on there, there was an absolute appetite for independent information about sustainable building so at the same time as starting my own small architectural business I created the green register and
2: so what's the the green registers aims and objectives
1: so it's now 20 years old and we have three aims the first of which is to provide independent information that was unbiased the second was to provide opportunities for networking. So if you kind of think 20 years ago, if you talked about sustainable building, you were looked at a bit odd and it was very sort of alternative and brown rice and lentils kind of stuff. <laughs> and uh, those of us who wanted to do this really needed to sort of meet other like-minded people to mm-hmm. reassure us that this was not mad and this was quite a sensible way of going. And the third, got, yeah, third aim of the Green Register was to provide a – register of professionals for clients who wanted to find people who were willing to do this kind of work again going back to working construction resources we got a lot of clients coming in looking around liking what they could see there were full-size mock-ups of sustainable building practices they go out back out the door they couldn't find anybody to deliver it
2: mm-hmm.
1: so we wanted to create a register of people who were who were keen who were committed and clients could go to architects, engineers, builders and so on. Um, and that was the idea of that was that they could then find somebody who wasn't resistant to these ideas.
2: Um so what how many um, how many people do you have on the, the register?
1: So um, we have several hundred. Um, one of my colleagues has the exact numbers. Hmm. Um they are uh, there is a prerequisite to join the green register which slightly limits the number of people on it in as much as we don't just want somebody to pay a fee and then join us so we we have a kind of way of filtering out people Mm -hmm. and they have to attend a certain minimum number of hours of green register training okay and so we train tens of thousands of people over the years but the actual number of members is is a few hundred
2: okay and then uh you've mentioned training i was having a look at your your website earlier you've got lots and lots of training opportunities mm-hmm. going on in in a whole variety of of uh, topics
1: yeah well i think um as an architect uh when i was working in in conventional architecture uh we we used to be the lead consultant but we would work with all the other players in the construction industry and it was very much a team effort so when i started the green register I really didn't want this just to be a training provider for architects or no. engineers. So there's a lot of our events that are applicable or appropriate for multiple disciplines. Um, and we actively encourage cross-disciplinary discussion. So if we get a room full of um, architects and engineers and some builders and maybe some planners we allow a lot of discussion in the events because it's really important for everybody to hear their own, their other people's perspectives.
2: Yeah.
1: And so the training is designed a to attract a multidisciplinary audience, but also to look at all aspects of sustainability. So a lot of focus is quite rightly made on energy, mm-hmm. but there's all sorts of other things to do with sustainability, water, health, wellbeing, being uh, material use reduction in waste and so we try to cover as many of those topics
2: well I think I think you've done an excellent job and I think that oh, uh, the combining of of the, the disciplines um, is, is really beneficial I think there's a lot of times when as a builder I get drawings from an architect that you know don't don't quite make sense in the real world uh, and you know that's the sort of frustration I feel Sometimes towards architects, and I'm sure there's many that come, come in the other direction. Um, so getting everyone in the same room to actually kind of talk about why, why they're feeling like that, what, what their the troubles can be is, is really beneficial.
1: I, I so so strongly believe that. Um, unfortunately, we have a slightly adversarial situation in the UK. Uh, my husband's American. We used to work in the states, and it's a much more collaborative approach between the professions and contractors there. Mm-hmm. And I kind of really enjoyed that that way of working. I mean, the particular practice I was working at in Boston. Um, we'd often get the builder right at the beginning, and they would inform some of the detailed drawings that we would do mm-hmm. um and here unfortunately, builders complain that architects don't know how to build buildings, and architects complain that builders don't do good quality work, neither of which is true, mm-hmm. but it's a it's a myth it's myths that are perpetuated, and it doesn't really get us anywhere
2: yeah yeah certainly the the amount of times i've I've heard recently about buildings being designed and then by the time it gets to the builder and the builder actually puts a, a cost on it it's it's then out of the the budget of naturally of the client and has to go back to the architect and get redesigned and so yes that's something we've done in uh, in heartwind is is try to be present from the very beginning
1: it's a real it's a joyful way of working actually um and, and this sounds a bit defensive for architects, and like I kind of think it is, but we've been demoted in our status, so we're often the contractors, uh, you know, subcontractor if you like. Mm-hmm. So we have much less influence on the way things are built. So we have to kind of front load a lot of our stuff at the beginning. Yeah. Um so I I think the procurement processes are not helped this, particularly when you're trying to build a sustainable building. Mm. So, uh, one of
2: the the events that I attended was the uh, the Green Ridge, the Hot Topic, uh, just recently in Bristol, or just before Christmas, actually. That was focused on retrofit. Now, what for the listeners who might not have heard of that? What is retrofit?
1: So, we we have an annual conference every year, and it's called the Hot Topic. And as you say, the last one was on retrofit. Um, people, different people have different. Uh, definitions of that my definition of that would be renovation sustainable renovation really i mean Mm -hmm. you can people use refurbishment renovation retrofits come on the scene as a term more recently and generally i i would understand it to meaning renovation using sustainable principles so looking at a building trying to improve it but improving it with the environment in mind
2: Mm -hmm. okay um and, and what, what sort of uh, improvements would uh, would you be looking to make?
1: So uh, we're working on a project called Future Proof, which I think we may talk about later, but that's dealing with the domestic market, so housing. And we, uh, we absolutely start with a whole house approach. So whatever you do to improve a house, it has to be looking holistically. Mm-hmm. Um, and we try to encourage people to look at fabric first, So we're looking at the walls, the floors, and the the roof, and -hmm. trying to improve the insulation levels of that, Uh, bearing in mind um, moisture movement and the fact that you might have unintended consequences as a as a result of adding insulation, um, making the building more airtight. But then you have to have a ventilation strategy. You know, all these things are interrelated. But we do start with a whole house approach, and we start with fabric first, and then if there's any more budget left then we look at the kind of renewable energy options like mm-hmm. solar panels
2: okay so thinking about our current housing stock uh what what sort of insulation levels uh would there be in, in a sort of standard standard home maybe a victorian house or...
1: so it it does very much depend on the period of the house um you know post 30s a lot of them have cavity walls so the walls may already have some level of insulation. Mm-hmm. um most houses have a pitched roof and it's extraordinary how we don't yet have all the houses with loft insulation um or inadequate amount of insulation and that is an incredibly low cost high carbon saving measure so yeah. i would look at that as the very first thing is try and improve the loft insulation um as i say you can you can almost do it yourself if you if, you're think, if you protect against um Uh, lack of ventilation in the roof space Um, that's a detail we talk about with um, our delegates Um, and then once you've looked at the loft insulation you might look at things like wall insulation which is complicated for pre 1920 houses because they're generally solid wall houses Mm -hmm. Um, and a lot of those are what might be referred to as high values so they're decoratively very beautiful on the outside they might be in a conservation area there might be limitations on what you can do to the outside Mm -hmm. so you then start looking at internal wall insulation and there are it's very very important when you're looking at internal insulation to do it properly and then there's and then there's floor insulation as well which depending whether it's suspended timber or concrete have different solutions
2: if we're talking about putting insulation inside inside the walls so that we have two options is that right there's there's internal
1: or external that's right yeah
2: and uh, is there one that's that's preferred?
1: Uh, external wall insulation is far better for a number of reasons. Um, it avoids um, some of the detailing issues that you get with internal walls hitting external walls. When you're doing internal wall insulation, uh, you're not losing floor space by doing external wall. You're also putting a big tea cosy over the house, so you're taking advantage of what's called thermal mass, which is the the brick or the block or the, this, the stone of the building to hold on to the heat. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's a much more effective way of doing it. Uh, if you do have aesthetic issues, though, that might not be possible. Yeah. It's more expensive per square meter than internal wall insulation. And um, you have to think about the weather, which you don't have to of with course. internal wall insulation. <laughs> but there's more risks with internal wall insulation.
2: OK. Um, so what are what are some of those risks?
1: The, the main risk with internal wall insulation is uh, you're applying a, a layer of insulation on the inside, which moves something called the dew point is the point at which airborne moisture, which is generated in the house through cooking and showering and so on. Mm-hmm. And that dew point gets moved behind the insulation. And you may well get what's called interstitial condensation, which is droplets of moisture behind the insulation. Now, if that insulation is a synthetic insulant, it gets trapped, the the moisture gets trapped. And we've seen numerous schemes where the internal wall insulation has been had to be taken off because of mould problems and there's black mould behind the internal wall insulation, whereas if you use a natural insulant, wood fibre is a really good example, Mm-hmm. it can usually cope with that moisture. I say usually because you have to have a ventilation strategy alongside it. Um, but we at the Green Register strongly advise using a natural insulant for internal wall insulation.
2: Great. And that's um, um, wood fibre you've just mentioned. What
1: is that that product? So it's, it's taking, it is actually usually virgin wood um, mm-hmm. rather than uh, recycled wood, pulping it. And then heating it up, and the natural resins bind the fibers together. So, in terms of a sustainable building material, it's a pretty good product. Yeah. Um, it's generally not using high value timber. Uh, there's not a huge amount of energy going into making. Obviously, you have to heat up the fibers, but um, in terms of health and well being, there's very little added to a wood fiber board that would be detrimental to the environment. Excellent. And it's really breathable it's It's excellent in terms of its moisture management
2: yeah when you when you say breathable, what can you elaborate on that that term?
1: yeah, so. it's a bit of a it's a bit of a rubbish word actually. <laughs> um, and people have tried to do enhanced moisture vapor transfer and all sorts of other <laughs> that's, that's equally useless <laughs> not useless but difficult. It's basically saying that it, if a if a material is breathable. It's not. It's not just vapor permeable like a mineral wool insulation is vapor permeable. It will allow airborne moisture to travel through, but a breathable material actually can hold on to the moisture within the fibers of the insulant. Okay. In, in this case, if we're talking about insulation, so it's kind of like a reservoir, and it's able to manage moisture much more safely than a synthetic insulant. And it will. The reason why a breathable is used is that you can absorb that moisture. But the principle is you can then release the moisture to the outside so it doesn't stay in the, in the material, it, it moves out. Okay,
2: yeah, so using it as a, a sort of battery almost, as a, a sort of yeah. rechargeable. It's a good way to put it, yeah. Excellent. And then going back uh, to external insulation, I'm just, sorry, hopping around quite a lot mm. in my, my brain. Uh, <laughs> it seems like if that's the, the preferred uh, option, it seems like there's also uh, difficulties there, which, um, well, just sort of coming into my mind instantly as if you put a big, big chunk of insulation on on the outside of a building, what then happens to the eaves? Do you then have to build an extra bit of roof?
1: Yeah, it's it's a really good question. Um, there was, uh, you'll, you'll have heard of the Green mm. Deal, which was a, a now defunct government scheme that was trying to um, deal with the The issue of um, people who wanted to improve their houses but didn't have the capital costs up front and so the government loaned them the money and uh, there was a scheme in Preston where um, they did a lot of external wall insulation and there was a there was a rush for this government funding very little training very little understanding about moisture movement and so on and the external wall insulation that was put on these houses had to be removed it was so badly done And one of the reasons was exactly what you're identifying, which is that they would, they would put the external insulation on, this was a terraced a group of terraced houses and they literally just stopped it at the eaves and just capped it with an aluminium capping. Yeah. And what happened over time is that the uh, rain or the moisture went behind the insulation, uh, got trapped, increased the moisture levels in the wall and Residents who'd never had mould in their houses started to get mould growth in their houses. Mm. So um, neither external or internal wall insulation is a breeze. It has to be done carefully.
2: Yeah. In
1: Bristol, there's a very good uh, guide that Bristol City Council um, created called the Bristolian's Guide to Solid Wall Insulation. It's freely available on their website, and it talks about a lot of the detailing. For example, you can put a little extension ladder on the end of the eaves to make the eaves longer, mm-hmm. so that when you put the external insulation, it's covered up by the roof. Right. Um, we put external insulation on our house, but we we uh, we're, were a detached, so we've got no issues with boundary conditions. B, we had a big overhang, so the eaves was about three or four hundred, and it could take that extra mm-hmm. thickness. But you're very right to identify. Um, that that you have to think about those details really well. You, know, you have to take the rainwater goods off. I've seen I've seen examples of external wall insulation where they just cut around the downpipe. Really? Uh, <laughs> yeah. And you know, I think the mode. I think that the concept was, oh well, there's insulation on most of the wall. Surely that's okay. Yeah,
2: better than nothing. But
1: actually, what happens is those little gaps concentrate all the heat and moisture transfer and make unintended consequences
2: right and um, what what could be those unintended consequences
1: localized um thermal bridging uh, localized moisture ingress uh, damp mold um usually not if it's brick it's not deterioration of the fabric but of course if it was timber frame it might actually be damaging threatening to the actual structure of the building mm-hmm. because timber's not very good above about 22 percent moisture content yeah. um so it really has to be done Carefully. in the Green Register, we run loads of courses on this to try and avoid the the worst detail. Yeah.
2: Um, So you said a term there, which, again, some
1: people might not be uh, familiar with, uh, which was thermal bridging. So thermal bridging is where there is an element in the wall, the floor or the roof, which is going from inside to outside without a break. So if you imagine, for example, over a, a window, you get those kind of catnick lintels, seal lintels, mm-hmm. which have a flange that goes um, above the window at the bottom of the brick and the block leaf, and then a triangular piece in the cavity. Well, that's actually providing a continuous link from inside to outside. So what that does is any heat from the inside can travel along that steel. Uh, equally, the cold can travel inside. It depends on the temperature differential, mm-hmm. And when you've got that kind of localized temperature difference, that attracts moisture. Right. Because nature's always trying to balance things out, you know, whether it's temperature or difference in relative humidity, nature's always trying to balance things out. So if you've got a route where you can, you've got a heat differential and you've got a piece of material that's going from inside to outside, that's going to make a problem. And that's called a thermal bridge, anywhere where there's a direct connection between inside and outside. Okay.
2: So does that mean, uh, I'm asking a question like I uh, have no idea of the answer. Um, (laughs) (laughs) So that must mean that you will need to have continuous insulation the whole way around your your building.
1: Absolutely. Hmm. Windows is a classic example. So when we put our external wall insulation, we were lucky enough to be able to take out the windows. They were the old crittle type. Uh, They'd been there since the building was built in the 30s and uh, were... You know, you could see daylight between the, the frame and the wall. They were practically pointless. Mm-hmm. Um, and when you take the windows out, uh, you need to return the insulation to the reveals of the window. Yeah. Whether it's internal or external, you have to have some kind of overlap. What tends to happen if you're not replacing the windows is that the the insulation will run into the reveals uh, or, it, or it'll just stop at the reveals, in which case you have a... A thermal bridge mm-hmm. you have this gap where you can get cold or heat transferring, and then you get the localized moisture problems and the the that the the advice is to always overlap your window with your insulation okay, so when you're looking at a section through a wall, the insulation in the window should have some overlap, even if it's only ten or fifteen mil because mm-hmm. then you're avoiding that thermal bridge right
2: so it seems like uh there's Quite a lot of potential to to make some mistakes throughout this. Um, lots of details of, of joining joining insulations, joining uh, components of a, a building. How are people able to to sort of overcome these potentially difficult interactions of, of materials?
1: Well, as I mentioned, there are some online uh, guidance. Mm-hmm. Some online guidance. I mean, the solid wall insulation, Brissolian's guide to solid wall insulation um is accessible across the country so if you don't live in Bristol you can still access it uh, that's a very practical one it looks at all the period properties types across mm-hmm. um, the city from uh, Georgian through to Victorian and then into the 20th century uh, with some good detailing so that would be a good start right.
2: um,
1: I would of course say that um the green register courses are a way to learn about this um and again we may be talking about this later but um, a lot of our courses up until covid have been very practical mm-hmm. so we'd actually get physical demonstrations of how to detail around windows difficult junctions uh, getting air tightness right using air tightness tapes and so on using full-size mock-ups and so on yeah and other courses are available excellent
2: yes well, <laughs> let's talk more about that uh, in a bit uh, we've touched on insulation or, or we've we've sort of dealt with that we know how we're going to to insulate our, our home you've mentioned their uh, air tightness um can you tell me what the the importance of air tightness is and how maybe we'll achieve it
1: yeah so air tightness is basically trying to remove drafts okay that's what it is either direct drafts through poorly installed windows where there might be a gap between the window frame and the wall mm-hmm but also to do with the fabric, the actual walls, floors, and roofs of, of buildings. Yeah. Um, and any time you have a draft, you're, you're making your heating work harder. Mm-hmm. And since most of our heating is using fossil fuels, or that, although that is changing, um, any time you've got a poorly performing external envelope, walls, floors, and roofs, you're making your heating system work harder. So the idea behind air is is to try and minimise the uh, gaps. Right the drafts, um, whilst maintaining fresh indoor air quality. So there's a difference between uh, unintended drafts uh, or infiltration of air mm-hmm. and uh, ventilation. So as you tighten up a building... And remove those drafts so that your heating system isn't working so hard and you're not using so many fossil fuels and producing CO2 and so on, you then have to make sure that your quality of air inside is good for human habitation.
2: Yeah. And and how, how are you achieving that?
1: So it's mainly around junctions. Mm-hmm. So anywhere there's a junction between a wall and a floor or a window and a wall or a door and a wind wall, any, any junctions are... Potential routes for cold air to come in and provide that unwanted cold air. Um, So it's good practice. It's actually not that difficult to do. And as a builder, you'll you'll know that if you're just a good, competent builder, you probably will get a reasonably airtight building. Mm -hmm. Um, So it's not rocket science. It's good practice. Um, But I think where the gap in knowledge is, it's a bit like the insulation, is that people think. Well, it's just a, it's just a couple of mil between, um, you know, the, the mineral wool and the timber frame. What difference is that going to make? Um, but you get a prism effect. The small gaps attract a disproportionate amount of heat loss and, um, moisture. Right. So trying to get those gaps to be minimized is what air tightness is all about. And as I say, it's not difficult, but I think part of the problem is people don't understand the importance of these small gaps. They see them and they think they're inconsequential and they're absolutely not. Right. OK.
2: Um,
1: and how, how are we measuring uh, the air types of a building? So something called a blower door test, mm-hmm. um, which is a pretty straightforward way of measuring how leaky your building is. Uh-huh. There's a number of people that will do it and it, it basically you employ somebody that's got the kit and the kit usually uh, is a, a panel that's the door size with um, adjustable size to fit snugly into a door. Um, it's made up of fabric, and in that fabric there's a fan. And you put you you insert the panel in the door. You close all the windows and the vents and everything in a in the building, and then you turn the fan on. Mm-hmm. And the measurement of air tightness is. The number of cubic meters of air changed per hour at a certain pressure differential. Okay. So it's meters per squared cubic meters per square meter at 50 pascals. And what the fan does is it pushes air into the building, and it measures how fast it has to do that. So if you imagine an extreme version where you forget to shut a window, mm-hmm. you start blow a door test. And that fan is just constantly trying to get that 50 pascals difference between inside and outside, okay. and it can never get there. So it's a, it registers it as an incredibly leaky building. In contrast, if you've got a very airtight building, like a Passive House building, which is a German standard, and they have very low airtightness standards, you turn the fan on, you get up to the 50 pascals difference, and you really don't have to pump much more air in right. because it's so airtight, it's not leaking Um, Anywhere, Mm -hmm. and then you can do something called a depressurizer, depressurizing um, test, where you take the fan and you reverse it, and you suck the air out of the building. And what that helps to do is identify where the drafts are. Okay. So you can reverse the fan. You go inside the building, reverse the van turn it on, and then you use something called a smoke pencil, which is just like a little wand with smoke coming out of it, and you can go around the building. And because you're pulling air in from the outside because the fan is reversed. Mm -hmm. As you hold the smoke pencil up against the places you reckon you're going to get the airtightness or the leakage, the smoke will move faster. So it's a visible way of identifying where those gaps are.
2: Sure. And then presumably you can fix those issues and, and see so you like your building better.
1: Yeah. Um what often happens unfortunately is the building is, is finished with the internal boarding finishing, you do the airtightness testing. And when you've identified where the gap is, it might actually not be where the gap is. Right. So say, for example, you've got a dot and dab plasterboard and it looks like it's manifesting itself at the skirting. Mm -hmm. The gap might be actually the other side of the room, but it's travelling behind the dot and dab and it's just coming out in the skirting. So the ideal situation, which doesn't often happen, is you have a two-part hair tightness test. You do one before the boarding is finished internally. Mm -hmm. Then you can literally see where the gap is and where air is coming in. You do the remedial works, finish it off, do another test, and hopefully you're you're getting to your achieved level. Right.
2: And what what sort of um, levels are say uh, an un unretrofitted building? What what airtightness would you would you expect one of those to achieve? Obviously, depending uh, it's on the very- period.
1: It does. And interestingly enough, you know, some of the Tudor half timbered buildings are quite good right. because they've used wet plaster and wet plaster is a very good air tightness layer. Mm-hmm. So it's not necessarily the older buildings are going to be poorer, although it, it generally is. Uh, the building regs uses 10 cubic metres per square metre, 50 pascals,
2: mm-hmm.
1: um, which is a very easy standard to achieve.
2: Yeah.
1: Um, passive house, which I've mentioned, is below one. Um, if you get lower than three air changes per hour, um, that's a very good air tightness um, level. But you'd have to introduce some kind of mechanical ventilation because that's too airtight to provide enough fresh air for people.
2: Okay. Um, on one of your training sessions just uh, last week, uh, someone helps to uh, visualise that. I forget whose talk it was, uh, but they said that ten, the uh, the ten uh, level, so the sort of the standard uh the building standard, uh was a hole the size of a an ATM machine. If you added up mm-hmm. all the little little cracks, uh that's how big the hole could be. And then a passive house standard was a hole the size of a credit card. That's right. So, that was a
1: good um illustration. That was yeah. Fantastic, yeah.
2: Um
1: Yeah. That was Niall Crossan from um ecological building systems is a very good way of demonstrating that. Yes.
2: I mean that's that's a an ATM is a, a huge, I mean, that, that is leaving a window. Open. We'll be back after a quick
1: break.
0: Hey there. I'm Mick from the Mick and Pat show. That's right. And I'm Pat looking for a podcast. That's like catching up with the old friends. Well, you're in luck. We're here to bring you weekly doses of lifestyle commentary, discuss culture and politics, and top it off with the occasional beer and film reviews. But it's not just about us. We're a community. Our listeners are our kin. And we let you all have a say in what we discuss. So saddle up and join the conversation at the Mick and Pat show. You can check out our website or find us wherever you get your podcasts.
1: It it pretty much is. Yeah. And um, you will get some resistance from some people who feel um, particularly in older buildings, that's not how they were designed. They were designed to allow fresh air to come in and keep the building dry and to keep the internal air quality um healthy and it's true that they were but if you can do it right you will reduce your heating load and keep the indoor air quality to a good yeah. good level
2: um so you mentioned there that if we get below uh three uh is it three meters cubed or three, uh, three per hour,
1: yeah okay.
2: mm-hmm. uh then we have to add in ventilation and what what mm-hmm. form can that come in isn't ventilation not just getting rid of all of our uh, heat and all the gains from from sort of sealing up the building and insulating.
1: Yeah, so um, there's something called whole, whole house heat recovery in VHR, and that's the preferred method for new build mm-hmm. um, because what you're doing is building a very airtight house, and then you're wanting to introduce fresh air, but you're not wanting to take the valuable heat of the house and chuck it out when you're ex- exhaling stale air mm-hmm. so the whole house heat recovery system which sits somewhere in the attic will um indirectly exchange all the stale air's heat with the incoming air and temper it so it doesn't have to be heated very much and it i, I understand that you can recover about 90 percent of the heat from the ex exhaled air absolutely um i think that most people feel that it's a bit sort of sledgehammer to crack a nut whole house heat recovery for retrofit mm-hmm. So you can have something called demand control ventilation, which is a much simpler system. It still provides fresh air, but uh, it doesn't do a lot of heat recovery, and it only kicks in when the humidistat determines that a certain combination of internal environment to do with humidity and so on is, is present. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's a less complicated way of uh, doing it. You can also employ something called passive stack where the natural system is to uh, warm, moist air rises up in the building and you have cooler inlets of cooler air rising up and there's no mechanical um, parts there. But you have to have a building that can be designed that way where the intake and the extract fence are positioned properly and you've got the right wind conditions and Mm -hmm. that sort of thing.
2: So one of the, the resistances I get, uh, sort of presented to me quite a lot when we're talking certainly about passive house and the airtightness that we're you're achieving there is that people are a little resistant to living in what they perceive to be a, a bubble uh you know maybe a, a balloon well you've you've retrofitted your house how how does it feel to to live in one of these these tighter buildings
1: well um despite numerous air tightness tests and me stuffing lots of gaps around the house on an ongoing basis, we can't get below eight. Okay. Really? Um, yeah. Um That is with a lot of effort. Um, you know, it's an existing building. It's on the top of a hill. We get a lot of wind. Mm-hmm. Um, I've just had to accept the fact we're not going to get, I mean, I've done it three times and we can't get below eight. Yeah. Having said that, I do employ a kind of purge system in the winter, so most days I'll open two windows in opposite parts of the house for a few minutes just to sort of flush through the pollutants and the stale air. Right. And it's a short enough time in the winter not to really cool the actual fabric down. It just replaces the air. Mm-hmm. Um, but with the more um, robust air tightness buildings like Passive House, um, I've not experienced it, but I've not heard anybody ever say anything other than positive because um it's it's a managed air management system mm-hmm. and uh it is it is providing good quality fresh air to the inhabitants of course in the summer you can turn it off if you want to and you can have the windows open yeah it's it's not a, an enforced thing um but i've i've yeah. anecdotally not heard any bad um experiences of that i think there is sort of a cultural thing about us we you know, as a nation, we sort of drown through our windows open and get some fresh air and uh, sleep with the windows open at night, which is what we do. And you like to hear the birds singing and, mm-hmm. you know, see what your kids are doing in the garden and so on. So there is some resistance, which I understand about that. Uh, but, you yeah, um, know, the benefits
2: for well, for, for how much money you're spending, for how much uh, of the, the Earth's resources you're using should be uh, a, a good enough incentive.
1: Yeah, I think it is. And, um, I think the other incentive for individual householders is the quality of the air and the healthiness of the internal environment. You know, we do spend 80 or 90% of our time indoors. Clearly at the moment, that's a lot higher, but generally speaking, um, most of us spent quite a lot of time inside and the inside air quality could be more polluting than the outside air quality. Right. So with something like passive house, you're really, um, providing good quality air and particularly with kids with asthma or other people with health issues that can be a real game changer for them Mm -hmm. so
2: what sort of um what sort of cost are you know again i'm going to ask you about an average house that doesn't exist but if if we were to retrofit say a a sort of you know two-bedroom family house semi-detached you know have you got a an idea of what sort of cost that might be to, um, to retrofit and then what sort of savings that would, would in turn, uh, give.
1: I'm probably not going to be able to give exact figures on that. Okay. Um, but if we look at the measures first, mm-hmm. um, simply, uh, doing things like, um, replacing your boiler for example if you've got a very old boiler it's going to be running very inefficiently Mm -hmm. so replacing a boiler might be three or four thousand pounds but you'll be using the heat that's coming in much more efficiently so your bills should go down as well as having an impact on using fossil fuels Mm -hmm. Um, you can do a lot of low cost things like um, draft proofing your windows um, either as a diy project if you're confident in that mm-hmm. um putting secondary glazing up if you can't put double glazing in um you know maybe replacing windows depending on the window style might be 800 pounds or a thousand pounds per window um, that might make a significant difference to your heat loss but also to your comfort levels right um, and that's something that passive house focuses on a lot is it's not just about energy it's about comfort in the house mm-hmm. um, If you're going to do some wall insulation, that will be several thousand pounds, depending on what measure you employ. Mm -hmm. Loft insulation is just a few hundred pounds. Then there's other kind of um, heating controls you consider. You know, if you don't have a thermostat, obviously that's a, that's a plus. So your heating's not going on when you don't need it. That's quite a small investment of money. you can go to more complicated things like thermostatic radiator valves and weather compensators, other accessories that will make your heating system work more efficiently. Mm -hmm. Um, What other things could you do? Yeah, I think there's sort of what people refer to as the low hanging fruit, like the draft proofing and heating controls and uh, windows uh, uh, where you'd start with and they're, they're low cost, but high carbon saving.
2: Mm -hmm. So, On your Green Register courses, how many builders are you getting that uh, want to learn how to to do these details?
1: That's an extremely good question. And as I mentioned earlier, the intention of the Green Register was to get across the the board uh, delegate attendance so that we'd get builders, contractors, architects, engineers and so on together. We have spent 20 years, nearly 20 years, trying to encourage builders onto our courses with very limited success. We've got a small number of builders on the green register, register, um, and they're the, they're the sort of pioneer builders. They're the people like you who've been doing it for some time, who understand the issues, who have got clients who want to build like this. But uh, very frustratingly for me, we have had very little uptake from builders until about 18 months ago. Mm-hmm. and then we were approached by uh, malcolm mcmahon who was until recently the director of Greenheart sustainable construction um and they're one of the 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 most sustainable builders i i know
2: mm-hmm.
1: who uh, have had decades of experience and came to the green register saying you know we've now got quite a lot of experience in sustainable building can we share this with other people and try and get more builders onto the green register of course which of course we we were very, very um, keen on doing. We started working with Malcolm, mm-hmm. and then it, just out of coincidence, Bayes, which is a business enterprise and industrial strategy government department, then sent out a um, uh, request for bids to work on the retrofit problem, mm-hmm. and that is that not a lot of retrofit is done very sustainably. So we were, we had already started this con- this conversation with Green Sustainable Construction. The bid came along and Centre for Sustainable Energy, which is CSE in Bristol, as an energy advice charity, approached us and said, would you like to come in on the bid with us, which we did. Mm-hmm. And we won the bid um, in November 2018. And the, the premise of our application was that CSE, who, as I say, are an energy advice charity, get lots of phone calls from homeowners saying, I really want to improve my building, my house. I can't find the builders. Mm -hmm. So there was a pent-up demand, and they could provide the demand, CSE could provide the demand, and the Green Register was tasked with providing the supply. So in other words, training the builders Uh to be able to satisfy the demand of CSE and other clients wanting to do this. And so uh, when we won the bid – we started working on this project called Future Proof,
2: mm-hmm.
1: and it's a kind of arm of the Green Register. and We work with CSE, and its, its primary function is to train builders in sustainable retrofit. And we went into it with our eyes open, having had 19 years experience of trying to get builders onto our course, knowing the barriers that there were. Um, We had some networking sessions and some breakfast meetings with the kind of core pioneer builders in Bristol and the southwest. I should mention that the the, uh, Future Proof is currently a West of England initiative. That's the way Bayes wanted it to run. And we identified all the barriers. So the barriers are things like um, builders are really busy. Um, They don't need to change their building practices. Um, Building control doesn't pick up on stuff that might not be compliant with building regs or it gets through after the inspection, clients don't want to pay for it, builders um, don't want to take time off, they're not paid to go and do training, all these barriers, and we've tried to solve that with future-proof. And future-proof is really gaining traction now. It's been a very steep journey for us. But we now have dozens of builders like you on our training courses, mm-hmm. and we're absolutely delighted that it's gaining traction.
2: So, how, uh, how are some of the ways that you've solved those uh, those issues that were uh, brought up in the first? Well, prob-
1: probably the core one is that we pay builders to attend, and mm-hmm. that seems to have unlocked everything surprisingly. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, we haven't got a huge amount of money from Bayes, but we wanted to. Remove the barrier of it being a financial burden on the builder, mm-hmm. so um, we are paying builders to attend our training. Um, we are trying to make it very much a blended learning experience, so we we don 't just do site visits we 'll do the backup theory that goes with it. Just a good example of that would be um, we had a couple of hours online different uses of lime in buildings. Mm-hmm. Then the trainer brought some lime in, showed how to apply it. And before COVID came along, we were lining up a site visit to show the builders how to apply lime in practice. So it's a very practically focused set of training. We've tried to time it so that it's not right in the middle of the day, so it's either early morning or after most builders have finished work. Mm -hmm. Um, They're short and sharp, so they're not, you know, huge long seminars hours and hours long um, and we're trying very hard to connect builders together so we have social events and so on so that builders feel um, that it's worth doing and that there's other people out there doing it. We've got a WhatsApp group so people can share ideas and swap uh, different thoughts about sustainable building. Excellent.
2: There's a lot of uh, builders out there who maybe aren't currently working to to create uh sustainable buildings or aren't focused on the details um how are you working to to influence them and and you know, maybe help to change their uh, sort of mindset or practices
1: yeah uh, i think we're we're Realistic that we're not going to reach everybody. Mm -hmm. So, if you imagine a sort of concentric circle in the middle of there, the pioneers, which are the builders that we started working with, who, like you, they're already on board, they understand the issues, they're already practicing what we're trying to teach them. The next concentric circle out is the early adopters. Mm -hmm. So, those are the builders that would like to do it if the budget's there and the client's keen and so on. And that's the group that we're concentrating on at the moment. The next level out is the people who might be interested. And then there's the general builders who we'll never get to, and we're not trying to either. You know, this is quite a small project mm-hmm. at the moment. But one of the things that we have developed is what's called Toolbox Talks. So once our builders have completed a certain number of training sessions through Future Proof, they become what we call FABs, Future Proof Associated Builders, mm-hmm. FABs. And they're then uh, offered up to other builders to provide toolbox talks. So this is peer-to-peer learning.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: So it might be somebody on that second concentric circle is interested, but just really doesn't get air tightness. They'll call us up. A fab will then arrange to go out on site, have a look at it, train them on the, the basics of air tightness. And what we've said is we'll give two free toolbox talks to any recipient who wants, if they want more of that, we encourage them to come in and become fabs, become future group associated builders. And the idea behind that is the pool of trained builders gets bigger and bigger. Yeah. So we spread the word through toolbox talks, but we're also trying to recruit more builders to come in.
2: Great. That's a fantastic. Um, I mean, obviously, I, I know all about it. But a, <laughs> yeah. I think it's a fantastic um, uh, way of, of yeah, passing on that knowledge and, and getting it out there.
1: It really is, and the feedback we've had has been fantastic with the few toolbox talks we were able to do mm-hmm. before COVID. Yeah, yeah, excellent.
2: Um, thinking about, uh, well, thinking about particularly Bristol, which is uh, where uh, I'm you know, living, they've said that we're going to be net zero by 2030. Uh, what does that mean for existing buildings, uh, your residential buildings, in terms of their energy efficiency?
1: Yeah, well, it's, it's a, it's a real uh, big ask, isn't it, to be carbon neutral in less than 10 years. Um, I attended an event at the beginning of the year held at, um, We the Curious in Bristol and the mayor, uh, Marvin Reese was there and, um, he was trying to sort of convey some of the measures that they were looking to, um, implement to try and achieve this. Um, it's, I don't know what's going to happen with COVID. It might actually have a good result, but um, being that construction and existing buildings are such a large part of that, um, I didn't get the sense that Bristol City Council was putting that at the top of their list, but uh, we are trying to work with them to encourage people to... Uh, engage future-proof builders because then the builders will be able to do the future-proof, uh, sorry, the retrofit work that actually will reduce carbon. Um, I think we're in early days yet and the COVID has thrown everything up, but um, I think we need more conversations with Bristol City Council because, um, you know, Marvin Reese's mm-hmm. priorities are understandable, but it's housing and jobs and the built environment isn't top of his list um, but actually, in order to get to that zero, net zero carbon, we have to do everything all at once. You know, we have to do the street lights, we have to do the council fleets, we have to do the buildings, right. we have to do industry. Everything has to be done. So, I think it's an emerging set of policies, and we want to be able to work with the council to help them achieve yeah.
2: that. It seems like an enormous task. If say we were to, the aim would be to to retrofit, you know, all the buildings in Bristol. Uh, that's a lot of buildings, and less than 10 years isn't a lot of time to get that all done especially to a to a high standard which isn't going to repeat the the uh issues that you talked about in uh preston um yeah it seems to me like a I, I can't picture how it how it could happen at the moment um i hope that that future proof is well it's it's definitely helping towards that
1: we hope so yeah, we hope so. And, you know, we we want to recruit more builders so that there'll be more builds available as and when the council says, right, we need good quality retrofit. Where the people yeah. who can do it? We need more builders. You know, as I said, we are getting a lot more recruitment, but we need mm-hmm. a lot more.
2: Um, so you said that uh, it's currently in the south, uh, sorry, the west southwest,
1: west of England. Yeah,
2: west of England. Um, is that is there a plan to to roll that out and make it? Uh, Nationwide?
1: Well, interestingly, that's a silver lining that COVID has presented to us. Um, Obviously, we can't do any face to face learning anymore for the time being, anyway. And we've had to convert all our courses to online courses, including our future proof courses, and have been absolutely delighted with the response, particularly from builders who, you know, we are generally trying to focus on face to face um, practical learning. But builders who've attended courses since the virus um, created lockdown have been extremely positive about the courses. And what's materialised is that once you make a training session online, it's not geographically limited. So Bays has six pilots around the country. We are one of them. We are limited to the west of England, which is the counties that used to be Avon. But all of a sudden we have the potential for being able to bring our training nationwide and at the moment we're working with a not-for-profit called carbon co-op in manchester Mm -hmm. who are kind of a hybrid of the green register and cse in in that they work with householders and builders and we're going to run a pilot with them to work out how we can do this sort of blended learning where we provide the online content and carbon co-op do the on-site sort of face-to-face training site visits and so on which will be in the future once we're outside of lockdown. But um, you know, despite the absolute tragedy that COVID is, the silver lining is that we could actually expand this this project nationwide. And of course, other councils are signing up to uh, zero carbon too. So they need mm-hmm. builders who know what they're doing uh, to address the existing building stock. So yeah. we're very hopeful on that.
2: Excellent. But well, I think uh, yeah, what you're doing is is fantastic.
1: Anna. Oh, thanks, Jeffrey
2: very Thanks. pleased to, to be a, a very small part of it
1: well you're, you're a very welcome part of it <laughs>
2: <laughs> um was there anything else uh, that you wanted to talk about in particular that-
1: um i would say if anybody's listening who is a builder who is interested in becoming a future proof builder to look on the on our website mm-hmm. either the green register or futureproof.com net dot uk or it might be dot sorry i can't remember I'll, that
2: i'll put a link in the thank link there thank you
1: um also if you're a client or yourself builder um and you want some help from a builder who knows what they're doing because obviously mm-hmm. you need the builder and the client to be on board with this um awesome. and recent experience has found that um most builders will say well i'll just do what the client wants." And we need more clients who want to say who want to the builder to build sustainably. Yeah. So um, put put them in touch with us as well. Or in awesome. touch with CSE, sustainable Centre for Sustainable Energy. Excellent.
2: All right. Well I'll put all those links out on the uh, on the show notes and um, yeah. Thank you so much, Lucy.
1: Thanks very much for, for letting us talk. Thanks, Jeffrey.
0: so thank you so much to lucy for recording that conversation taking the time there'll be a list of links in the show notes of this podcast for all of the things we've talked about want to say a big thank you again to mike hill for giving us our music and to you the listeners um, thank you very much for listening for this first year. Uh, I hope you've enjoyed it. I've certainly enjoyed, uh, reading your, your comments, uh, and hearing your suggestions. So especially thank you to Lee John Phillips. Um, he has created a wonderful, really great logo. I spent a long time looking back over the years work. Uh, and seeing how it developed and how it changed. And it's maybe taking on a slightly different route than I maybe originally had intended. Um, I was looking out at other podcasts and there's lots that are to do with building science and a very, very, um, uh, kind of clinical, I guess. Um, and I like that actually that building sustainability is, is, got more of a focus on craft and tradition uh, and people, um, I feel like that's a, a, maybe a slightly unintended consequence. I'd been thinking about redesigning the logo and I was thinking about using old tools to, to represent the, the craft and the heritage uh, and the building. I thought about it and then realised that Lee was a far, far better artist, uh, designer designer um, that I should just ask him. Uh, luckily he had a gap in his schedule and, and said he would. I think he's boiled down the essence of the craft, the heritage, you know, the nature and the people into three perfect tools. So yeah, many thanks. Uh, once again, I hope you've enjoyed listening. Uh, if you have got suggestions for who might be a good podcast guest then please drop me a line or get them to send me an email. And following straight on from this episode, there's two more. So I hope you're staying safe and healthy. And remember, stay home.